Alrighty, kiddos, it's time for our kids' corner here. Uh, maybe you guys can come on up front here so we don't need to move the camera. So on your way up here, I have a question for you to ponder. What question is it that adults always want to know from kids? Come on up here a little closer. I promise I don't have fleas. I won't bite. Oh, you brought shorts along. So, so what is it that adults always want to know from kids? What do you think? Is it, do you like asparagus? No, that's not it, right? How about, what do you want to be when you grow up, right? So what do you want to be when you grow up? Have you not heard this question before? Oh, yeah, yeah, you yeah. say so you're familiar with it. A vet, okay. So do you know why you want to do that? Because you like animals, okay? And what do you think, yeah? A horse racer, well, a, a horse razor. Ah, 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 okay, gotcha. I'm, I'm sorry, the old ears, you've got to be really careful, right? All right, hiding behind Stuffy, what do you want to be? An engineer. Do you know why you want to build, be an engineer? or Because you like engineering, all right. So, all right, but here's the question. You know, most of you decided this based on how you, you know, the things you like, right? So now I remember when I was a little boy, at first I wanted to be a garbage man because I thought, you know, the truck is really cool and the guy gets to squeeze the load, right? You know, well, and it came with an added benefit as far as I was concerned because it doesn't require too much extra school, right? So I figured I probably could have handled that by the end of second grade or so. But, <laughs> but my mom discouraged that idea. And later on, I thought maybe I wanted to become a doctor. And part of the reason I thought that is because, like in the game of life, the doctor makes the most money. And I thought that was a good deal, right? So do these sound like good motivations, though? No, not maybe very good. And actually, maybe the whole question is kind of wrong. And I think maybe a better question, because I find, like, when I try and pray with God, what should I do? A better question might be, how should I serve? What do you think? So let me, I, I, I'm getting a lot of weird looks up here. So let me, let me explain what I'm thinking. So you all know that during the week, I'm a science teacher, right? You've heard that before? Maybe? <laughs> okay, well, I, it is true that I like science very much, and it's true that I'm okay with kids, too, although sometimes they're a little slimy, you know, right? But not the girls, of course, right? But anyway, um, you see, that isn't really what gets me up and going every day. It's more like this. I've figured out how to pour love onto hard-to-love, naughty little boys. How about that? Is that a good way of putting it? 
<laughs> and so that's how I'm serving. I'm just doing it through being a science teacher, right? Because I don't think talking about science would be enough to get me out of bed every morning for 40 years, you know, right? So anyway, back to the garbage man story. See, we got a new garbage man, and actually you guys can wander back to your seats while I'm telling this story. So we got a new garbage man a number of years ago, and the garbage man was a woman, which sort of surprised me. I just, I guess I didn't really see it as kind of a woman's job, maybe. And so I asked her, you know, whatever made you want to become a garbage man? And she said, well, Jesus told me to do it. And I thought, Jesus wanted you to be a garbage man. So I was really surprised at this answer. So I kind of explored it with her. And she said, no, it's, it's all about how to serve. And I wanted to set up a business where I could help my community by giving work to hard to employ people. So I became a garbage man because the Lord opened my eyes that this was a way that I could do that. So, you know, that, that was just dumbfounding to me. And so this is kind of what I want to chat about today. You know, do we, how do we hear from God? So may the words of my mouth and meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my strength and my redeemer. When I first came to faith in my early 20s, it was kind of like a mountaintop experience. I felt as though I was walking and talking with God all the time. Um, and it helped to have an old rusty van that didn't have a radio that worked. So, you know. <laughs> but anyway, um, as my faith matured, these feelings seemed to dwindle. And after a while, I wasn't even so sure I had heard from God where I thought I heard from God. And I began to question whether I experienced his presence or whether it was in my own imagination or I, I, and I wondered why this wasn't something I could sort of turn on and just step into the presence of the Lord and feel like he was there quite the same way as I once did. Actually, I began to wonder if Failure to hear God was a sign of a weak faith. And I wondered if I'd closed myself off from hearing from the Holy Spirit, as Paul suggests might happen in Ephesians 4.30 to those who ignore the promptings of the Spirit. Was it because I was still locked in sin in some way? So I tried to double down and be better at listening to and following the lead of the Holy Spirit and then I was late for work one morning and I saw this woman who had a flat tire and I really didn't want to get out of the car and help with that in the rain. But I did do. Um, but that also didn't really seem to turn this back on in quite the same way. And then I began to wonder, you know, if I prayed in faith, would my prayers really be answered? Because I began to think about how many parents over the years must have prayed for a sick child, and yet that child died anyway. Was that merely a case of weak faith? Or wasn't God really there and listening after all? 
Where was he when things seemed to get tough? When I walked through business failure and personal problems, some around me questioned whether I was actually following God's prompting, and I wondered, what was I missing? Well, if you've ever been in this situation, the next few messages are for you. I hear from my non-believing friends that experiencing God's presence is all mystical hooey, but I do know from personal experience, there have been things revealed to me in prayer and in meditation that I couldn't have imagined or ever come up with on my own. And I want to be clear from the start. If there's any voice in your mind telling you that you're somehow inadequate or that your faith isn't good enough or that you have a f or that you fear that you don't have what it takes to hear from God, this is not the voice of the Holy Spirit speaking to you. This is the voice of the enemy trying to drown out the silent truth always present in the background. The enemy makes things seem more complex than they really are. His loud, attention-getting lies, accusations, guilt trips, and fears are very much as personal as hearing from God. Perhaps the first part of experiencing God is recognizing the enemy so that he can be tuned out and ignored. And this, I think, is why it's so important to know the character of God. To know that God doesn't use guilt, he doesn't use fear, he doesn't try and drown out the big, boastful, loud voices of the world. He doesn't shout them down. He quietly reminds us that we are loved and he is in control. That his plan works for the best and he's got this, whatever this happens to be in your life at that time. You see, I believe we're living in kind of a paradoxical time. I believe we're meant to experience God's presence. After all, Scripture tells us so. I, I think we're meant to be in an ongoing conversation. And I think it can be abundantly verified in experience when rightly understood. So the Bible says, Adam and Eve visited God in the garden. Enoch walked with God. Abraham went where God told him to go. Moses had a face-to-face -face conversation with God. All are commonly regarded as highly exceptional moments in the history of theology, but I believe that they're only unique for their roles. In other words, they were exceptional because of what followed. Moses was exceptional because of his leadership role. Aside from that, experiencing God's presence isn't that exceptional. Otherwise, how could there be a personal God? How could there be a personal walk with God? An experience of his presence without individual communication? And after all, Jesus tells us in John 15, 15, that we are his friends. And again, you know, certainly that seems to me to imply a personal relationship. We certainly 
hear the voice of the, the devil from a personal perspective. That temptation is tailored to me. The voice of condemnation, it's tailored to me and what I've done. And the voice of doubt hits me just right where I still question. But God's care for the individual is uniquely emphasized in Christianity. Our ability to commune with God is unique among all the religions of the world. Our God is our shepherd, not just to all the sheep, but to the lost sheep. To me or to you when we're lost. His relationship is as parent to child. He is father, not just father to us all, but father concerned uniquely for the prodigal son. He is the lover and we are his beloved. The Bible portrays the relationship between God and the believer as parent to child or friend over and over and over again. And down through the ages, there is a vast record of those who have had communion with God and not just the fathers of the church and the but rather countless ordinary people, too vast a number to list. Personal communion with God is, in fact, what it means to be Christian. Just look at the hymns we sing. Savior, like a shepherd, lead us. Savior, <clears throat> or all the way, my Savior leads me. Where he leads, I shall follow. He leadeth me. Guide me, O great Jehovah. I'm sure if I needed a longer list, I could consult with Jeff here, and we could probably come up with a dozen more quickly. Hardly an all-inclusive list, but the words of the hymns all follow kind of a familiar pattern. He walks with me. He talks with me. He tells me I am his own. And the joy we share as we tarry there, none other has ever known. This is unique to me. So on one hand, we have this massive testimony to widespread, personal, guiding communication. It's emblazoned on church history. How many times has a new church started because someone heard the voice of God? Even today, rarely do church leaders profess to teach or lead the people of God on the basis of their own education or their own talents. And let me be clear on this. If you've ever thought that was me, that's definitely not the case. A book is a poor substitute for the spiritual lessons in life. Authority and spiritual leadership can only come from personal experience. It can only come through walking through the fire yourself. That is our testimony, I think. On the other hand, we also resist sharing these personal experiences. We don't want to be seen kind of like those who have been visited by the UFO or had the near-death experience. We, we fear others may believe we're crazy if we share too much about our encounters with God. Or we worry that we aren't hearing correctly should I be hearing more? Does God talk to other people more than he talks to me? Or is this just really my own thinking? 
And maybe some of us still wonder if there's anything to it at all. Well, this is what I want to talk about over the next few weeks here. You see, because we find a pervasive and often painful uncertainty about hearing God's voice and experiencing his presence. But as disciples of Jesus Christ, we can't abandon faith in our ability to hear from God and our ability to have a personal relationship with him. So therefore, this paradox must be resolved. How can we become more confident that God is communicating with us? He's guiding us. He's at work in our lives. First, we need to understand that God's communications come in many different forms. To the Jewish and the Amish, they experience God's presence and obedience. Or the Roman Catholic, who experiences God's presence in the Eucharist. Our Protestant forefathers said it was through a better understanding of God's word. And that's why in Protestant churches, the sermon is so important and it's replaced the mass. And so if my sermons are too long, take this up with Zwingli and Calvin and the guys, right? So, <laughs> but, you know, the Anabaptists and Moravians thought that God's presence was experienced through worship, in singing. And perhaps that's why our Southern Baptist brothers and sisters have developed so much gospel and worship music today. With the Mennonites and the Amish again, God's presence is experienced in fellowship. There's something special that happens when believers come together in common belief and fellowship. Or the Quakers found his presence in silence, silent meditation. The Pentecostals and Charismatics find it in a spiritual, emotional high. Wherever it is, the Bible also tells us we can experience God's presence by knowing his word and meditating upon it both day and night, or appreciating and communicate, communing with him in his creation. Is it any wonder then why the world tries to undermine these things? It tells us the Bible is errant, it's incorrect, it's wrong, it's not scientific, or that creation somehow created itself in a giant cosmic accident of sorts. You see, to undermine these is to derail the personal experience of God freely available to everyone. In any event, if we want to hear and experience God, let's get into his conversation. And over the next few weeks, I want to look at this concept in more depth. I hope this series removes fear and hesitation if there is any on this subject. And I hope that we can come out with the realization that God is always present with us. He's here walking with us. He's Godness.